Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, last week we didn't finish our section in Matthew 6, uh, 5 through 18. Let's turn there and just look up for a moment at the fasting uh, phrases here. And frankly, I forgot my outline, so I have to look up here. Our fasting must be sincere, not for others, but for God. Uh, fasting is something that you'll find many times in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, many examples of when people would fast, when there's a special time of seeking the Lord among Israel, or they're facing a major battle, or there's some special thing that they really want to seek the Lord on, fasting is shown to be very useful in the Old Testament. There was only one day in the Old Testament uh, where all of Israel was required every year to fast. Only one day. And that was the Day of Atonement. Now, later on in Israel's history, uh, toward the uh, latter part of the... Uh, Old Testament period, you, you know from Zechariah that they fasted three or four days in the year to remember when the temple was destroyed, to remember when they were taken exile and so on. But uh, in the Old Testament, originally in, in the, uh, in the uh, Pentateuch, there was only that one day. Now, the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday, and we know that because uh, Jesus makes reference to, to it in one of his little parables. Uh, that they took great pride in their twice-a-week fasting. So it was a very rigorous uh, ritual for them. But once again, uh, the Lord said to them when they asked why His disciples didn't fast every Monday and Thursday, He said, they, you don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. You fast when He's not here. So He was saying basically they've got the bridegroom with them. They've got Christ with them. So fasting is a time when you don't have what you want and you're seeking God for it. Now, uh, in our day, we probably underuse fasting. Uh, in, in our church, we'll generally say to the congregation on good, or before Good Friday, you know, if you'd like to join the pastors, we're fasting this Friday. So we just pick one day a year on Good Friday. It's not in the Bible that you do that. But we just seek that day, uh, take that day to seek the Lord in a very special way and to remember the sacrifice He made for us on Calvary's cross. Uh, it might be good for you to pick a day a year when you're fasting. But remember, you're not fasting for yourself. You're not fasting so that you can say, Lord, look how much I'm willing to sacrifice for you. Now, this is the, the mentality often that we have about certain spiritual disciplines. It's kind of like giving up something for Lent. And we take pride in the fact that we've, we've abstained from something or that we've sacrificed so that we can feel good about our own righteousness. And Jesus is saying in this text, don't let it be known that you're fasting to everybody around you. In other words, uh, they would, the Pharisees would paint their face white and they would, you know, they'd let everybody know that today they were fasting. No, he says, do it for the Lord alone. Now that would suggest then that the point is not what you're fasting from, it's what you're fasting toward. So in other words, you're not eating meals today so that you can spend more time really seeking the Lord. And sometimes, as Jesus showed us when he went fasting in the wilderness, when we leave behind some of the regular things we enjoy in this world, it causes our bodies even to help our souls seek God. So just as your stomach is uh, beginning to bubble a little bit and, and gurgle and, and say, feed me, and it's asking for something, it just leads your soul to hunger more for God. 
So the whole point of fasting is not what you're getting away from, it's what you're getting, what you're moving toward, and that's Christ Himself. So it's very important to remember that if you're going to enter the discipline of fasting, that you actually, it's a joyful occasion, it's a joyful day when you're being fed richly from uh, seeking God in an extra special way. Uh, often uh, the disciples, uh, the, even the apostles, would fast before a major decision was made. Before Paul and Barnabas are sent out on the great first missionary journey, they're fasting and praying, and then they lay hands on them and send them out. So I, I suggest that the evangelical church in our day underuses the ministry of fasting. You might think about it in, in your own life. Sometimes a fast will just include skipping one meal. And you just decide, you know, today I am going to enter into some solidarity with the poor of the world. And I'm going to take the $12 I would have spent on lunch today. And I'm just going to just add that to my offerings. I'm just going to give up lunch so that somebody else might eat today. Uh, you might do that and thank the Lord for it. Uh, or you might take a half-day fasting. Uh, and sometimes, as I say, it's a whole day. I know others who, of you who have taken a three-day fast, sometimes a week-long fast. Uh, if you do more than that, I suggest that you consult your physician. Uh, some of you, your physicians, have been suggesting fasting for a long time, and you haven't been listening to them. Uh, but you can see what the point here is with Jesus. With your religious rituals... Be very careful that you're not manipulating your relationship with God to bring favor from other people. What a horrible perversion of our relationship with God to take the pleasure that ought to be given to us coming down from heaven. And since that's not adequate, we're going to seek pleasure from others thinking that we're religious people. What a perversion. And Jesus is saying the Pharisees have it all wrong. That your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Their Monday and Thursday fasting is nothing compared to the piety of a genuine believer. That's what Jesus is saying. And the genuine believer really seeks the Lord in private and derives pleasure from seeking Him. So that kind of wraps up those first 18 uh, uh, verses. And, of course, what Jesus is talking about in those first 18 verses is our private righteousness, our piety. Now when we move to verse 19 following, he's going to be talking a little bit more about our public lives and the way that we deal with righteousness in public, and especially these first verses we'll give heed to today, verses uh, 19 through 24. Let's take a look at them. <clears throat> Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're talking about mammon here. We're talking about material wealth. We're talking about what difference it makes for a disciple of Jesus, and it's hard to think of anything there would be more important to talk about than this. 
Uh, and Jesus is showing us we have to have we have a choice to make between two treasures, two visions, and two masters. Uh, and that's they're, they're, so there are little contrasts here, three contrasts here that he talks about. Um, when we look at just our nation's consumptive habits, it's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, this this multiple trillion dollar debt that we have that's just growing every day. Uh, I mean, I can't. I don't even know what a trillion is. I mean, I have a hard time getting my brain around a billion. You know, a thousand millions. I can, I can kind of get a hold of that, but a thousand thousand millions. I, I, it's, it's beyond me. And we are just eating this up every day and charging our children for it. Uh, when my when my dad um, uh, knew he was dying of cancer, uh, he began to take all of his letters and papers and important things in his files and began to just shrink them down into the most important things he wanted to be sure his family uh, had from him. And it's very interesting. By the time my dad died, he had it all in a box that big. Just take, take your life, all your papers, and the things that are important to you. Can you get them in one box? My dad did that. It took him you know, several years to, to, get it, to boil it down. And in that box, of course, we're all very interested. What's in the box? Uh, and in that box, there are several letters uh, to congressmen and senators. And in there, in, uh, with those letters is a cover letter to his four children. The letters to the congressmen and the senators uh, are, this is back in the, the late 70s, are to say to those congressmen and senators that they are spending money that we don't have and the only way in which they can spend it is to charge his children for it, and he doesn't appreciate it one bit. And he wrote them multiple letters. And then he collected those letters he had sent over the years, as I suggest, and he put a cover letter on them to all of his four children, and he sent us a letter. And he said, attached you will find my correspondence with, correspondence with our congressmen and our senators, and I want you to know the mess that you're in, I didn't do it. <laughs> and gentlemen, I believe you should do the same thing. You know, in your box of things to do, uh, to pass on a legacy to the next generation, you should try to use your influence to cut your own consumption down, to increase your own problems, make your life a little tighter so that the children won't have a $50,000 per person debt that's on their heads right now when they're born into the life, this life. My grandchild, just born last week, owes $50,000 just to get started. That's obscene. And obviously it reflects a people who have an appetite that has just gone way out of control. Now, for those of you who, who realize that national policy is more than just balancing the budget, I want you to know I believe that too. Because one can look at how we spend our money, and we haven't spent it particularly well in terms of taking care of those who have less. All the tax policies that we gun for, usually our, our party uh, alignments, have more to do with what that's going to mean to us individually, financially, than anything else on the agenda. So if you're a Republican or a Democrat, usually what that means is you are one of those because you believe your personal life will be better off by being aligned with one of those parties. So uh, even those who sometimes are against a huge natural, uh, national debt are not for spending our resources in a way that helps the general populace. We're still intensely selfish. And the reason we want the debt to be down is so that we don't have debt and so that we can make more money and so that there's not a big tax on the profits we want to make. So let's, be, let's not be too quick 
uh, to take pride in our uh, being against a, a huge national debt. It's, there are multiple prongs to this issue. But what it demonstrates is the amazing power of greed individually and corporately. And when it goes unconstrained, it will tank a nation. And it has many times. And surveys have been done even in marriage to show that 70% of married couples in this country, their primary source of argument is money. The primary source of conflict in their marriages has to do with how money is spent or not spent, depending upon which side of that equation you fit on. So we know that money is a huge issue. Well, guess what? It's always been a huge issue uh, ever since Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus comes into this world speaking a lot about money. Some have suggested uh, that about a fourth of your Bible is about possessions. There's a lot in the Bible about possessions, and Jesus teaches about it over and over again. About half of his parables have to do with possessions. So let's dig in, and what we're going to see here is that uh, we have some very important choices to make. We make them definitively when we commit our lives to Christ, but then we make them over and over again. And if we don't make them, uh, then what we're going to find is that it's going to eat our lunch. It's going to eat us up. In other words, we get in control of it or it gets in control of us. And let there be no misunderstanding that when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, your uh, billfold becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, Martin Luther was uh, famous for saying that the last thing that gets converted in a man is, is his pocketbook. So your pocketbook gets converted. And if uh, any of your brothers were to pick up your checkbook, or your account on your computer, they should be able to see right away you're a disciple of Jesus Christ by the way you manage your, manage your money. I'm just amazed, for example, in some of our political campaigns when people show us their finances and I look at the small amount that they give away. I'm just, I'm personally scandalized. But what I realize is nobody else is scandalized. And the reason is that very few people are giving much of anything. Well, let's just take the North American... Uh, person who happens to live in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world. And let's look at how much money uh, we give away. Statistics show that the median gift in North America uh, is 0.67% of income, less than 1%, to anything. And only 2% of those gifts go overseas to a world that is starving, where children are starving and dying of preventable diseases every second that I talk this morning. And we're only giving 2% of our charitable giving overseas. So less than 1% at all and, and 2% or less of that overseas. So we're not a particularly generous people. And furthermore, what you find is as the income goes up and as the nation prospers, we actually give less on a percentage basis. In the Depression, your parents and grandparents were giving uh, time and a half what you're giving on the average. We give 2.6 or 2.7% in the churches at large, and in the Depression it was about 3.5. So when, when we were really struggling to have, to have anything on the table, we were more generous. So what we find is that money actually, uh, it actually anesthetizes people from giving money. Uh, more money actually uh, freezes up the coffers. It's an amazing, amazingly wicked drug. It's a lot like narcotics. 
If you have a pain management issue and you take narcotics, what you'll find is that after a while, you're not sure if the pain is coming from your original problem or whether the narcotics are simply sending a message to your brain that they want more narcotics. That's the nature of narcotics. They actually create the sensation of pain in your body so that you take more narcotics. That's exactly what money does. And if you don't get on top of your narcotics and you don't get on top of your money, it's going to get on top of you. So that's the reason that Jesus talks a lot about money. It's because it's very powerful to do a lot of good, just like narcotics are. But it's also very powerful to do a lot of evil. And that's the reason that Paul said to Timothy, look, Timothy, the root of all evil is the love of money, the love of things, the love of possessions. It's interesting, if you read Tim Keller's book on idolatry, which is one of, I think, his better books uh, that came out several years ago, when he talks about the idol of greed, he says this about it. He says, in my ministry in New York City, I've had people come to me and confess all kinds of sins. And he says, particularly in New York City, everybody confesses their sexual sin. It's probably the most popular sin in the city. Everybody's living with somebody. Even the Christians sometimes, they'll struggle to break off their fornicating affairs. And everybody will confess it freely. He says, in all my years in New York City, which now would be about 20, uh, 20, 22 or 23, he says, never once have I had a man come into my office and confess to me the sin of greed. Not once. And he says, the reason is greed and money has such power in your life, it will, it will instill its own defense mechanisms in your heart. So that it's kind of like sex used to be. You just didn't talk about it. Now you just don't talk about money and greed. It's so private, so intimate, it's so shameful and embarrassing. We just pretend as though we're not greedy. And nobody confesses it. In the evangelical church, nobody confesses it. So you see how wicked, how pernicious... Uh, the sin of greed is. It covers itself. And it convinces you to hide it and not to confess it. When's the last time you've, you've been in a small group with men discussing things of the heart and everyone talked about how greedy they were and how they needed to get a grip on their greed? You probably never had that experience. Here's the reason Jesus talks about it. It's the hidden sin that people don't want to talk about that's eating their lunch and tearing up their spiritual lives. And many of our folks, young and old in our churches, are living paralyzed Christian lives because the greed is eating their lunch and they don't want to face it. They're they're blaming everything else. And they're complaining about their busy schedules and how their life is fractured and how they don't have time for this and don't have time for that and how they're under so much pressure and how their kids are going haywire, all this. And what the real problem is, at the very root of it, is the love of things. And it's hidden itself. And it hasn't come to the surface so it can be dealt with. Well, guess what? Jesus, well, you know, he's, he's the pastor of all pastors. He brings it right to the surface and says, boys, we're going to look at this one. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at these first three verses when Jesus is teaching us that we must choose between two treasures. And you say, well, I don't have to choose. I'm just getting along fine. No, Jesus said, no, you have a choice to make. This is where it starts. And you have to realize that there is that these two things are antithetical. You cannot embrace them both. They are two treasures, and you have to decide which track you're going to be on. And if you go on this track, you will treasure treasures, material treasure, and you will not treasure the Lord in His kingdom. 
On this other track is the Lord and His kingdom, in which case you will not treasure material things. And so there, there's a fork in the road, uh, and as, uh, what's his name, New York Yankees? Yeah, Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. So here you are. Uh, earthly treasure is perishable. That's the first thing we learn in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. You're going to lose it. It's perishable. And he's comparing here the durability of these two treasures. And he's saying you're crazy for treasuring something that's passing away before your very eyes. It's futile. As someone once said, we spend most of our time buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much what we do. Now, notice here, Jesus is not saying don't use treasures. He's not saying don't keep a bank account. He's not saying don't save. He's not saying don't be, as George Bush said, prudent. <laughs> George Bush the first. Prudence, prudence. Jesus teaches prudence. Jesus believes the, the pet Proverbs. He believes his own parables. He believes in using, using wicked mammon to achieve good ends. And uh, as Wesley said famously, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Make all you can. You know, sometimes you guys will get to a point in life where you, you look at your, your uh, 501, whatever it is, uh, you look at your retirement account, you look at your bank accounts, you look at your investments, and you say, you know, I'm fine. I really don't need to work anymore. And to you, it seems like the height of virtue then not to work if you don't need to work. Well, gentlemen, I got some news for you. There are a lot of people in this world that need you to work. They're poor. They don't have any bread. They don't have any clean water. They don't have a missionary. And they would very much appreciate it if you go ahead and make some more money. Because if you'll use it well. So sometimes even the thoughts we have about retirement are so self-centered, it's amazing. You're just going to work until you don't have to work. Well, wow, how ingenious. How selfless of us. Uh, so just because you finally achieve the moment when in spite of all the things that happened two or three years ago in our economies, you're still sitting there real pretty and you're thinking, ah, put my feet up. Hang on just a minute. Wesley said, I think rightly, make all you can. And some of you have the gift of making money, and some of the rest of us actually depend upon it. <laughs> so get going. I always tell people, now you leave that me in Bible study, go out there and make a lot of money and don't forget to tithe. <laughs> you know? So some of you have the gift of making money, and I say if the Lord's given you that gift, I think Wesley's right. Make all you can. Now, as you make it, of course, you have many other considerations. You have many other stakeholders in your business, including this community, including the poor of this community. And you have many other stakeholders in your family, including your wife and your children. So you have many things to take into account while you're making all that money. And you don't want to be making it at the sacrifice of the core values in your life. But assuming that you've got your core values in place and that you're, you're making that money as a Christian man, make all the money you can. Then Wesley said, save all you can. Indeed, you should. You should save very carefully. And you should use the general arithmetic that has, has been taught so many of us about retirement. 
you know, take 70% of your income stream and try to live on that at, at the most in the, after you retire and consider a 4% return on whatever you've got saved. So you do all that math and you'll figure out, you know, this, is, this would be what probably is going to keep me out of trouble with my children. In other words, I won't have to be depending upon my children if I can store up this, this many nuts, you know, in, in my little squirrel hole, you know. Fine, save all you can. <clears throat> now, Wesley said, give all you can. So that puts a lid on all those savings. So you're going to save and you're going to invest. And now, okay, now how much more do you need? And why do you need it? Or do you have a general strategy of divesting yourself for the sake of the kingdom of God? So you're making all this money not to build an empire. You're not making all this money to ruin your children, which so many people in this church and other churches around here do. They actually hurt their children with all their hard labor to make all this money because they've been very unwise in the way in which they've administered their estate to the next generation. And the, for the formula you, you use is this. What is going to enable my children to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to engage His kingdom? What is going to keep them from doing that? There's your decision. If you are passing down funds to your children so that they can be more powerful and just simply be more wealthy and put their feet up and smoke a big cigar and have everybody else be jealous of them, you've just wiped them out. Why are you doing that? So think strategically about this powerful thing called money and how you're going to administer it. And you put a lid on what you need for yourself. You figure out what that is. Then everything else you're making is a big engine to get out to the cause of Christ here and around the world. That's the way you've got to think. But so often we just let it accumulate and pile up and we just take greater and greater pride. Well, look at me and how much money I've made. And of course you don't go bragging about it. That would be gauche. But what you hope is that somebody else will tell everybody else about how wealthy you are. Uh, and that's the way it works because it gives you power. Well, Jesus says, do not treasure for yourselves these things. It's absolutely futile. Nobody takes their barns with them to heaven. You won't find any barns with that kind of stuff up in heaven because the treasures there are so much greater. So let us be very careful. Responsible saving, uh, responsibly caring for our families. If we don't care for our families, we're worse than an unbeliever, says the Apostle Paul. But then don't treasure that. Use it. Don't treasure it. So what do you treasure? Well, look at verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So what Jesus is teaching here, there is a way in which you can actually save some real treasures. You can actually build an empire. You can actually put some stuff aside that will endure, that you can enjoy forever. Wow, you say, where's that bank account? Jesus says that bank account is with your heavenly Father. You say, oh boy, pie in the sky. Only pie in the sky if you don't believe it. If you believe it, it's glory. Now let me tell you how it works. There are some things you can do in this life in your three score and ten, or if by measure of strength you hit four score. There are some things you can do in this life that actually you can take from this life and push it into the next life. You can actually build an account that will endure. How do you do that? Well, first of all, every time you worship the Lord, it, it's an eternal joy, an eternal pleasure. 
It endures with you. It's connected with everything you're going to be doing uh, for eternity. Worshiping Him now, giving Him praise now is something that endures forever. It echoes through the hallways of heaven forever and ever. Secondly, with evangelism. When you're leading someone to Christ, watch this now. You lead someone to Christ right here. They're going to perish. They're going to die. They're going to be six feet under. You lead them to Christ. And all of a sudden, we find out that when they leave that body, they go to be with the Lord. They go into heaven. And furthermore, when Jesus comes back one day, He resurrects their body. They receive a body just like His body. And that glorious body goes into the presence of the new heaven and the new earth in the presence of the Lord. That is putting something in heaven that's going to endure. So we, when we are looking for those investment opportunities, we are wise people. The man who saves souls, says Proverbs, is wise. Why? Because when we're saving souls, we're increasing our savings account. Because you will put someone in an imperishable place to be your imperishable friend. And you will be imperishably honored for it. Now, there's, there's a good way to get things into heaven through evangelism and discipleship, which secures their place with the Lord in their own hearts and in their relationship. Now, thirdly, with your money, you say, how do I do this? Well, Jesus doesn't say explicitly, but doesn't it seem clear that uh, he says in the Proverbs, the one who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and he will honor him. Okay, so if I am caring for those, I'm taking all that money I make and I'm taking a portion of it aside to invest with something that's going to bring returns beyond my imagination. So I take whatever I can get out of my living expenses. I get over here in this investment. And this investment is investing in the cause of Christ with the poor, the marginalized, the impoverished, the lost. I get it invested there. And what I'm told by the Proverbs is, I just lent some money to the Lord. What do you think his interest rates are? I have no idea, but I think they're somewhere around infinity. (laughs) I just think the interest rates are beyond our imagination. So when I give, I actually give money away, it looks like I lost it. No, no, no. I lent it to the Lord. Now we know the Lord is nobody's debtor. He's everybody's creditor. But he reverses it in the Proverbs and says, this is how I'm going to treat you. So what the Lord is saying is that through your worship and through your evangelism and through your giving, you can actually put treasures in heaven. Now, let me just mention uh, a a, a kind of a no-brainer way to make a, a major investment that we often overlook. And that's at the end of your life. You know, you've been saving up these dollars so that you you can retire comfortably and not be a burden on anybody, quote, quote, quote. Uh, But then what happens when you die? Where's all that going to go? Well, you say, it's going to go to my children. Are you sure? Are you sure you want all that to go to your children? Uh, Have you thought about maybe there's some other children that might need it a little bit more than your children do? And have you ever considered the thought that maybe your children really won't be helped out with all that money? That it might even hurt them if you give them that much money? That it might be good to give them some seed money. might be good to help them, you know, help them with a down payment on the house or something like that. But with all that money, you sure you want to just put that into their hands. They're already wealthy. They've already got great educations. They've already grown up in an environment of hope where they know that if they work hard, they'll be rewarded for it. They already have that mentality. You trained them. Most people in this world don't have that mentality. They have a mentality of hopelessness. Are you sure you don't want to take 
those considerable assets at the end of your life where you're going to make the largest gift you probably ever made. 95% of men make their largest gift at the end of life. Now, are you going to be non-strategic about that? You're not going to really give it much thought? You know, uh, sometimes it's very difficult for us to think about life here on the earth beyond our own time here. You know, it's hard for us to imagine this world going on without us, and we don't think about that very much. But it is going to go on. All the rest of us know this. And why not now decide that you're going to make a major investment in the kingdom of God with your resources, and why not leave that as not only a legacy for the poor and lost, but leave it as a testimony for your family that one of the key things you care about is the advancement of the kingdom among poor and lost people. And get that nailed down this month. It's November 2012. Let's get it nailed down this month. See, see your lawyer, whatever you need to do, and get your estate fixed up. Now, here at Second Presbyterian, uh, us guys, we've got the Second Presbyterian Church Foundation. And if any of you need more information, there's Monty Weaver right over there. Monty, raise your hand. Monty, be glad to help you. And just planning for the use of these things so that you're not greedy on your behalf and you're not greedy on your children's behalf. You're greedy for one thing, the Christ and the kingdom. And everything about you, including your private little you know, investment strategies, they reflect that. And let your wife know what you really care about. Let your children know. So those are some things that Jesus, I think, is pointing to when he teaches us that heavenly treasure is imperishable and you need to get all that heavenly treasure you can. And that's how you get it. It's by investing in the kingdom because the kingdom of God endures. As a mighty fortress tells us, his kingdom is forever and it's not going to pass away and all of your investments will be safe. Martin Luther, once again, put it this way. He said, I've held many things in my hand, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, I still possess. Isn't that true? The great early father, Tertullian, said, Nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. I'll leave your finger in Matthew 6 and... Turn over to Proverbs 16, 16. There are so many verses in Proverbs we could look at. i just like to look at one just almost as an example. This is on page 1162, 1163, Proverbs 16:16. And look what Solomon says. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Here's what Solomon says here and says throughout the Proverbs to his children. He's trying to train his very wealthy sons who are royalty. They're in the royal family. He's trying to train the princes about how to live life. That's what Proverbs is all about. And he's, so he's talking, to some of the, he's talking to the wealthiest people in his own nation. And he says to these wealthy people, look, you've got to seek for wisdom more than you do gold. You've got to seek for understanding like most people seek for silver. And his point is you can't do both. And if you're after silver and gold, you're not after wisdom and understanding. It's just that clear. They're always antithetical. And that's what Jesus is saying. Notice in verse 21, then back to Matthew 6, that the reason that we place our treasures in heaven, besides the fact that it's only, the only way really to help other people is your heart follows your treasure. It's important that your treasure be put in the right place because, gentlemen, that's exactly where you're putting your heart. 
the, the way that you invest, there, there's where your heart's going to go. What's really amazing is that people are causing themselves all kinds of, of heartache and headache because of the things they're investing in. Some of these high-risk ventures that they think are going to make them fabulously wealthy, they put their money in those things and they've just given themselves migraines you know, for the next four years. Studies show that the more money you have, the more backaches you have, the more headaches you have, and the more anxious you are. We know this empirically, scientifically. This is not just uh, mush. It's, it's the truth. Studies have shown the more money you have, typically, the more headaches you're going to have. And the reason is, it's where you're putting your money. It's not the making of the money. It's where you put it. And so when you buy those big boats and buy all these recreational places, you've got to have managers who take care of it. And when there's a flood somewhere, it will flood your stuff. You've got to take care of your stuff. You're trying to be a custodian of stuff everywhere. Have you ever thought about renting? Hello. Hello. <laughs> have you ever thought about just taking a vacation and going somewhere where you don't own anything? Has that ever crossed your mind? It's possible. You know, people do those things. And you can actually enjoy life and you don't have to manage all that stuff. And let me tell you something else. It's also cheaper. Now, some of you have places that you use generously to let other people use. And the rest of us slobs really enjoy that and appreciate it. <laughs> but for your own sake, for your own sake, it's so much cheaper to learn how to just use things that you need and not own everything. You don't have to pee on every fire hydrant, you know, <laughs> and kind of claim your turf. And, and that's, the way, that's the way guys operate. They just want to be in charge of stuff. You want to be in charge of stuff. Now think about this just a minute, guys. Do you want to be in charge of an earthquake? Do you want to be in charge of a volcano? Would you be really happy if you owned a big piece of property and right there was the world's greatest volcano? So, whoa, I'm really proud I own that property. No, these are all liabilities. Why do you want to own all this stuff? It's liabilities. We call them assets. But they're draining your money and your energy. You need to get yourself down to fighting weight. Get yourself in the battle again. And I, I know from, from my own son who was in battle, the last thing he wants is one more ounce of equipment he doesn't need. When he goes into battle, you got all this stuff on you, man. you got about 50 pounds of stuff you're carrying around until you get a little higher rank and then you don't have so much stuff. Other people are carrying your stuff. But nobody wants to go into battle with a lot of stuff. Why do you want to go, why do you want to go into battle with all this stuff? Get rid of some of your headaches and some of your heartaches. So slim this thing down. And then get your heart into where your treasures, your material treasures are going. And what I've found, Monty, haven't you found this true on a foundation? That as people put their funds into certain things in this city and into certain causes around the world, all of a sudden they want to know about those things. Is that not true? They all of a sudden want more information. How's my investment going? And so they're not asking, how's my business going and its returns so much? It's how are my spiritual returns going in this investment I just made? You'll find your heart, your mind, and sometimes your body actually goes where your investments are. So what, what Jesus is saying here is you're actually directing your life with your money. So where you, the, the people to whom you write that check, those are the things you're going to be interested in. Those are the things you're going to read about. Those are the things you're going to pray about. Your prayers follow your dollars. 
That's the reason I tell folks who are raising up missionary support, be sure as much as possible not to get dollars just from the wealthiest people. Get dollars from the prayingest people. Because if they put their money with you, you you'll be on their prayer list. And the, and the people who know the Lord and pray, those are the ones you want talking to Him about you. So their money's harder to get. They have less of it, but go for it. That's where the real riches are. People who are investing in you because they believe in the kingdom and you'll get their heart and then you'll get their prayers. So gentlemen, remember that your bank account, your checking account, everything you're doing, you're actually directing where your heart's going to be every time you write a check. You have to be very careful with this, Jesus says. Now, secondly, Jesus says some words that sometimes are not as easy to understand here. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. What's he teaching us? He says here that we must choose between two contrasting visions. And Jesus here is stressing not so much the comparative durability of the treasures, but the comparative benefit of having your eyes on material things versus the benefit of having your eyes on spiritual things, eternal things. So that which is material, the problem with it is it passes away. The good thing about investing in the kingdom is it doesn't pass away. And Jesus here is showing us the comparative benefits. What's, what's the benefit of a healthy vision? A healthy vision brings light. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So when you have a vision for the kingdom a vision that compels your material investment, then what that does, Jesus is saying, that means your eyes are enlightened, you're looking at at things the way they really are, passing away versus not passing away, you're looking at reality, and therefore your whole body is flooded with light. And he said that's an enormous benefit. Money is so powerful, it will direct your vision. So the way in which you're looking at all of life is going to be informed by how you manage your money. It's amazing how powerful it is. And he says the eye is the lamp of the body and therefore if the light's turned on, your body has light. If the light's turned off, you're in darkness. That leads us to the second thing he says in verse 23. Unhealthy vision brings darkness. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he says to disciples... He says, especially with you guys, you're the ones who are the light of the world. He's already said that to them in Matthew uh, 5.16. You're the light of the world. He says to them here, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If the light of the world is dark, what a dark world we live in. If you have no wisdom about how to manage money, how rampantly greedy this country really is if the church doesn't rise up and take responsibility, not only for fiscal responsibility in every realm in which we operate, beginning with our private and family lives, and then our church lives, our communal lives, and our national lives. If we, you know, we must live with fiscal responsibility because of what the Proverbs teach us. Otherwise, we're just consuming more than we have a right to consume. We're taking somebody else's money to consume the goods of this world. That's what debt is. So if, if we don't have any enlightenment on that, how dark is this place? 
And then he says, if you don't believe that when you make an investment in the kingdom of God, it's in an eternal bank account, if you don't really believe that, who else is going to believe it? Who else is going to be motivated to care for the lost and the poor if you don't? How dark will this world really be? Well, I'll tell you how dark it'll be. Lee Iacocca, some years ago, you remember at Chrysler, they had a rough year and he cut all the merit increases. No merit increases for anybody at Chrysler. You remember this? Except that he had a $20 million bonus that year. Of course, he was asked about that. Let me tell you what Lee Iacocca said. And by the way, I think Lee Iacocca is a genius. But this is what he said. That's the American way. If little kids don't aspire to make money like I did, what the hell good is this country? How great is the darkness? Look where it leads. Look where greed leads. Complete insensitivity to the little children of this world. Not only are we taking a bonus when everybody else's merit increases are cut, but now we are poisoning the children by telling them that the purpose of their life is to make a lot of money, and then we tell them that's the American way. I don't think Lee Iacocca must know very well who George Washington is or Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or John Adams, people whose estates were devastated because they were living for their neighbor and fighting a battle at the risk of their own lives. When they signed the Declaration of Independence, they may as well have signed their death warrant. All those men maintained their honor because they were willing to put their estates on the table and pretty much every one of them lost their estates. I don't think that he knows what the American way is. We have a great legacy here and we're losing it. Who's the one who's supposed to restore it? It's only men who have a Christian vision, who can see beyond their own nation, who can see beyond their own generation, and who can see right into the heavenly realms and are making investments in it all the time. And they're living their whole lives for that. And when they do that, their whole body has light. Their whole life has light. Everything they do has light. Because they're not living a certain part of their lives in the dark where their their bank accounts are. And they don't want anybody else to know their personal finances because they want to live in their own private greed without accountability. That is darkness. And anybody here who's walking in the light really ought to be perfectly happy for some confidential friend to come along and look at your entire financials and to see what you're doing. In fact, you ought to wish that somebody would because that would be the best way you could teach others how to live their material lives. You need to live your life so that you would actually wish for an opportunity when somebody 10 years younger than you says to you, do you mind showing me how you manage your finances? And you can show them your books. You ought to long for that day. Get your finances in order right now so that you can teach like that when you have the opportunity. And that's the most powerful teaching you'll ever do is when you let some younger person see how you manage your finances. Let them see everything in confidence. So get yourselves in order now. Otherwise, you're living in the darkness. If you're not prepared to teach someone who wants to grow and know Christ and show them the way, you're living in darkness in your finances and your whole body is dark and it's having implications all over your life. Some of those anger fits that you have, some of those uh, problems with relationships that you've got, some of your boredom in worship, it's all going back to this grip that mammon has around your neck, choking out the life in you. It's amazing how it works. Uh, you can see in a book uh, like uh, Tim Kasser called High Price of Materialism, he does an interesting study there where he shows that actually 
uh, money leads to, the, the acquisition of money beyond your basic needs leads to more unhappiness, not less. And th- these are scientific studies that are done. And uh, he shows how also the more money you make, the, the stronger felt need you have for more money. It, re- it really is like a drug. The more you make, the more you feel like you need to make. And the more you make, the unhappier you're getting. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, now, once again, Jesus is not against money, and I don't think Castor is against money either. Uh, we're, uh, but what Jesus is against is the destructive use of money. So therefore, it's like electricity. You've, you've got to control electricity for it to be useful. Or nuclear power, it has to be under very uh, rigid constraints. So if you're going to make, as Wesley said, make as much as you can, that's got to be under some rigid constraints or it's going to do a lot of destructive things in your life. There's another book by Madeline Levine called The Price of Privilege that I would recommend to you. In this book, she shows how, once again, studies demonstrate that the children of privilege have enormously higher rates of depression and anxiety than the people in the working classes in our country. So, so a good number of, of us here would have to say, you know, our children are children of privilege. And what she shows is that there, there are a number of ways in which we thoughtlessly uh, swim in privilege and it causes our children not to establish healthy self-esteem, healthy self-direction, and healthy problem-solving in their lives. Because with our money, we seek to relieve them of all kinds of burdens and complaints and problems. And we, we hire a whole bunch of people to take care of them and to remove their problems. And they end up not being very well-adjusted people. So the cases of depression, anxiety, personality disorders are much higher in the upper-income areas with their children. I suggest you take a look at that book, especially if you have young children. Now, you don't want to go depriving your children of everything. She'll give you some ideas. For example, you know how uh, educators tell us as dads, you know, you've got to have the sex talk with your kids. I think it was one of you who told me the other day, your dad um, came to you after you went to a sex talk, you know, in your high school, uh, and you came home from school and he says, son, was there anything you didn't understand? No. There's your sex talk. And he walked out. That was it. Uh, some of you have not even done that. But we're, we're told over and again, you, you really need to talk about uh, sex with your kids and need to talk about relationships with women and, and how they can have really enjoyable, healthy friendships with girls. You need to talk to your kid about that. And I'll, uh, here's the short version of it. Uh, this talk's not on sex, but, you know, you know us. We'll talk about sex anytime. Uh, the key is that you can have more intimate relationships across the gender gap the more careful you are with your sexual boundaries. It's actually the boundaries that enable you to build meaningful friendships. When you cross the boundaries, everybody, including you, knows you're using that person for your own pleasure. You're not loving them. But if you create the boundaries, you're actually showing respect for them and loving them as a person, which is, duh, the groundwork for a good friendship. Anyway, you've got to teach your kids that stuff. And you've got to talk to your kids about alcohol use. You know, son, until you're, whatever the drinking age is, is it 21 these days? I think it is. It should be. Uh, until you're 21, come on, let's just have a rule. You're not going to be drinking and breaking the law. That's just against the law. Now, when you get to be 21, uh, let's talk about it. And so by the time they're in their teens, you're talking about their strategy for drinking. 
And you, you talk to them about biblical principles about drinking. If you're a wise father, you're going to do that. Um, what about money? How often it is that the only thing your kid gets about money is that they need to work hard and they need to save. That's about it. How often do they really get from you, look, kids, you've got to have an aggressive strategy here for how we're going to invest in the kingdom. So rarely do they hear you talking about what you're really interested in in kingdom investments. They need to, Levine says. Well, let's move on. We've just got a few minutes. Thirdly, you must choose between two masters. Why? Number one, both of these masters are totalitarian. Both of them demand your total devotion. If you don't tell Mammon where to get off, he's got you. If you don't boss your money, it will boss you. Guaranteed. So you need to take control of material things that are under your charge. Get control of them. Manage them. Tell them where to go. Put them in the right places. Be the boss of your money. Don't just let the, the accumulation of things begin to overwhelm your life. Get, over, get on top of it because it is a totalitarian boss and it does not allow any competitors, including Jesus. And all you have to do is look around and watch. The love of money is the root of destruction for the kingdom of God. And that's the reason our country is losing its moral compass we have at least twice as much wealth as when I was a kid. I was telling our, our congregation on Sunday that between 1957 and 1990, between the time when I was 6 years of age and 39 years of age, the average income on constant dollars of the individuals in this country just doubled between the years when I was 6 and 39. Well, let me tell you something about when I was 6 and 39. The morality of the country did not double. It was about cut in half. So be very careful. This is a totalitarian boss you're dealing with. You better be its boss. Secondly, they are mutually exclusive. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Gentlemen, you can't do both. You cannot be on the same agenda with people who are trying to acquire more and more wealth and also be on the same agenda with Jesus Christ. Now you can be, and you must be, dealing with folks who are doing this. I'm not saying withdraw from the world. I'm not saying cut off all your friends who are controlled by wealth. No, you're right in there with them. But get this, you're right in there with them with this agenda. You've got a kingdom agenda and you're right in here with these other guys whose only agenda is power and control and material wealth. And you're mixing it up with them. But you're mixing it up as a secret counterinsurgency expert who's got another kingdom agenda right in there with them. And there's nothing more powerful than one day when they ask you how you spend your funds and you actually tell them. And they ask you why. There's your opportunity to gain one more servant of the great master, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to save us from the punishment of our, that's due our sin and also to save us from the grip and power of sin and mammon. And thank you for these words from Jesus in our text today that 
loosen the bonds uh, between us and the material wealth of this world. Lord, help us to go into this world aggressively, enthusiastically, and hopefully, and with a sense of knowing at the end we're going to win. Help us to go into this world and to manage the things that are here and put under our charge in such a way that we truly make investments in the kingdom which is coming even as we pray. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.